What's up, everybody? Metal Dave here, along with my co-host, Jason McMaster, bringing you another episode of the Talk Louder podcast. Today, we are joined by vocalist, multi-instrumentalist, and songwriter Jacob Bunton. Jacob is on the featured vocalist on the new Mick Mars album, The Other Side of Mars. Oh, man, but that's just touching the tip of the iceberg. His, his resume is incredible. Uh, he was in a band called Adler with Steven Adler from Guns N' Roses. Uh, he was in a band called Linum. He was in a band called Mars Electra. He's written a number of pop songs for artists that you've heard of. Uh, and he was too humble to talk about it. But Neon Coven. Yeah, Neon Coven. He was in a mm -hmm. band called Neon Coven. Still is. In fact, he yeah. played a show recently. Mm -hmm. And uh, what a great guy, man. Uh, very humble. Uh, very grateful for his success. And he tells us that he does not do interviews. We're one of only about three or four that he's doing. And uh, so we feel really grateful to uh, to have him on our show today. Yeah, he um, is only mysterious because of how humble he is, because he admits to us uh, some reasons why. He has a very interesting story. I mean, there's millions of people that have a similar upbringing that he has. It's not, you know, yeah. it's very, it's quite normal where he comes from. But we'll, we'll let him use his words to tell his story. Uh, and he doesn't, it's not long-winded. He does bring it up a few times. Um, just about how, uh, he was very, he was very open to tell his story about growing up and how he got his first guitar and how the rest kind of was history. Yeah. Uh, but it's once again, not to dumb it down at all, but it's fairly common the story he tells. Um, but obviously has done very well. And um, it's only because of his passion for what he does and that is what I, and we talk about it. We get chummy in, in this episode today. Uh, um, I met Jacob on, uh, I believe the first cruise that I did was called uh, Ship Rocked. And uh, not the Monsters of Rock. It was Ship Rocked. And that's the first time I believe that I met Jacob and, and his band Linum. Um. And I learned more about Linum today than I did. And I've seen Linum play a few times on the fucking <laughs> ship. So I learned really more great. about Linum today than, than I, than I even knew ever. And that was a long time ago now. Yeah. Um, but just from afar, being able to admire my friend Jacob and, you know, find out these things just via uh, the grapevine, uh, how actually successful the guy has been and just not even there's no change in his, he looks exactly the same the day that I met him. His <laughs> demeanor, his love and passion for for all things music as I think the reason why he, he has stayed the same is because uh, that has never wavered. That one thing about music that, you know, when you hear something and you fall in love with it, that's his beacon that's his lighthouse yeah that's his savior yeah he he was great uh very humble uh very funny some of the you mentioned line some of the stories about line were hilarious 
Which, you like, know, I, like I meant, just mentioned, I didn't even know that. And now, and now David Lynham, the guy the band was named after, apparently was this horrible drummer who got really badass, and now he's a comedian. Yeah, and yeah. With the stories yeah. Jake Jacob told us today about about David Lynham was, but he should be a comedian because you know maybe he'd break out a drum kit and tell do his own rim shots. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Jacob is insanely talented. Uh, he was a little too humble to to go into all of his credits, but you can look him up. I went into this thinking, wow, he's on the Mick Mars record. That's the biggest opportunity of his lifetime. And uh, with all due respect to Mick, uh, Jacob's been around. He's done some pretty incredible things and some amazing things. Uh, he's one of those guys that, you know, just like all of us, one day when we were kids, we decided we wanted to be rock stars and some of us make it and most of us don't. But he's one of those guys that could make a very comfortable living, I imagine, doing the behind the scenes stuff because he's an amazing songwriter. He plays every instrument you can. That's throw his day him. job. Yeah, that's what he does. You just and described his day job. Yeah, that's, that's his day job. That's yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's yeah. like he never got on stage again. He would be doing just yeah. fine in the world of music because he's uh, insanely talented. So well, and not to not to rub it in and 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 do you know say it again, but uh, thousands of people are watching movies with Jacob's music blaring in the background over the dialogue. Yeah, you just don't right know. now. Yeah. So he, just so you know, everybody out there in in music world, uh, you're surrounded by Jacob Button and you didn't know it today, <laughs> tonight and here now. Rare appearances here. Jacob Button on the Talk Louder podcast. Man, we're, we're doing great. Uh, you're you're um, you're back in Alabama. Yes. Do you keep do you keep uh, a homestead there? Yeah, yeah. So I have a place in California and a place in Alabama. Mm -hmm. yeah. Are you in Birmingham? Yeah, Birmingham, the big city. Yeah, <laughs> I used to live in Tuscaloosa and then in Montgomery. Oh, that's cool, man. Where are you now? I'm in Austin. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What, what took you to Austin from Alabama? Uh, well, it wasn't a direct route. Basically, my dad was in the uh, military, so we bounced around quite a bit. So when I lived in Tuscaloosa, I was too young to remember. When I lived in Montgomery, I was in uh, ninth grade, and we were only there for a year. But I was old enough, obviously, to remember, so I do remember my time there. Um, and then we moved to San Antonio and then on to Austin. So He's a, he's a Texan. I'm a native Texan. I just He's moved around a lot. In pretty between. much a Texan. So. Yeah. That's cool. I lived in Texas when I was a kid. I went to elementary school in Texas. I lived in, started out in, in uh, Galveston, Texas, and then Houston, Texas, and then Pasadena, Texas, and then eventually uh, back to Alabama. I spent two years in Galveston before this trip wow. to Austin. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Galveston is is where uh, I developed my fear of the ocean because I almost drowned uh, right off oh, seawall. <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> wow, no, no fun. I I have cousins that Pasadena. You say Pasadena, I know all about that. Uh, I have I have relatives that 
pretty much grew up there. My family's from the Gulf Coast anyway. I don't know if you knew that. I did not. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. Have you met Dave before? Have you met yeah. this guy before? No, uh, we've, we've never met. Uh, we do have a, a mutual friend in common, though. Uh, Johnny Martin is a friend of mine, and I know you've spent numerous, uh, a lot of time with him. And then uh, uh, me and Ace Von Johnson are acquaintances. I, I would say I'm much closer with Johnny. Uh, but I know both those guys, and I know you've been in bands with each of them, and that's on my list of list of things to ask you about today. But uh, it's nice to meet you, man. Thanks for joining us. Nice to meet you too, man. Any any uh any friend of Johnny Martin's is is a friend of mine, dude. You just named two of my favorite people, so yeah, yeah. yeah those guys they're, are kind of great. still at to this day kind of unsung heroes, and they've actually uh, been big supporters of Dave and I. So yeah, yeah. Love those guys. Love those guys. That's killer. Well, man, I was looking at your uh, doing a little research and, you know, I was going to say this Mick Mars thing uh, was I was thinking is probably the biggest opportunity you've ever had. But holy crap, man, your resume is full of big names and a lot of accomplishments. And uh, and I do want to get to to as much as we can. But uh, let's start with the gorilla in the room, the whole Mick Mars album. Uh, by the time this episode airs, the album will be out five days um so how uh, did you meet mick prior to being involved in this album um so I, I was always a motley fan growing up and all that just like all of us are and um paul taylor was actually involved in it early on paul taylor the the great songwriter keyboardist guitarist you know extraordinaire yeah. um the wizard michael wagner had yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Winger. Yeah. Yeah. The, the wizard, here. the wizard oh, of the Winger. Wizard. Yeah. He is a yeah, wizard. yeah. 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 Um, so Michael Wagner had brought him in, um, to the project cause Mick had been working on it forever. I think something like five years, he'd gone through a bunch of singers, a bunch of, you know, different people trying to put it together. And, um, I think he had gone through like five singers before me and, when Paul was asking him, you know, well, what are you looking for? Um, Paul called me and he said, man, Mick just described you um, like, like what he's looking for, like the, the voice and all of that. And I was like, all right, cool. And so I went to Mick's house and I met him and Michael Wagner there and Paul. And um, yeah, and we just kind of started writing and, and went from there and, and it just it worked out. Um, just like everybody, when Mick first announced a solo thing, John Karabi was on board. I was just as excited as everybody else. It's like, oh, my God, it's going to be another album like that Motley record, that self-titled Motley record. And um, yeah, and for uh, for whatever reason that uh, that didn't come about. But uh, yeah, man, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, and I I was looking at the uh, the album because I was I was kind of curious to know how much of this was Mick basically handing out orders and how much of it was sort of a democracy. I know uh, with Paul Taylor, of course, you've got an amazing musician and a, and a great talent, and I think Mick would respect that. And you yourself uh, bring a lot to the table. And so looking at the credits, um, I realized that you're you're all over this record. So it sounds to me like 
Uh, Mick was pretty receptive to the ideas that the rest of you guys were bringing to the table. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Mick is like the king of riffs. Like he just has all these riffs, just, just loads and loads and loads of riffs. And they're all amazing. Um, and he was playing some really heavy stuff that, you know, kind of was reminiscent of that Motley record that I referenced, you know, the one that Karabi's on and some stuff even heavier than that. And, um, yeah, so it was a lot of fun to collaborate on, but, uh, but Paul, myself and Mick, you know, we, all three of us wrote the record. Yeah, that's that's amazing because a guy, you know, a lot of people from the outside might think that, you know, Mick Mars being the big name that he is, he's kind of calling all the shots and telling you guys what to do. And and that's just the way it is. But it looks on the credits, at least like very much a democracy. Um, so I was do you was there any was there any time when during the process when Mick was saying whatever you do, don't do anything that sounds like Motley Crue or was the or was was the field wide open is a good song is a good song kind of thing. Before I ever stepped foot in his house, like I'd already heard that, you know, he didn't want to do um, something that sounded like Motley Crue because he had done that for, you know, 41 years or, or however long it was, man, he wanted to do something that was different. And it was a democracy as far as the songwriting goes and all of that. But make no mistake, it's mixed record. Like he final call on everything and some things he would be like, no. And, you know, even if it was something that was like, like, oh, man, this would be so cool at the end of the day. You know, you have to respect that. It's his record. It's his vision. Um, he's calling all the shots. He's, you know, it's it's his thing, his project. We're just... Um, we're just on board and like I said, happy to be on it. Uh, Ray Luzier, the drummer for Corns, the drummer and like that dude is just amazing. Like watching him do his drum tracks was just like next level. It's just amazing. <laughs> I love that I can sense that you have such a fan's enthusiasm for this, even after all your years and experience in the business. We have guests on the show uh, a lot of times and you can sense they're still every bit the fan and they're still super eager to be part of it. They're not jaded or anything. And I, I can really feel that vibe coming if, off. Yeah. If I may jump in and, and yeah. say that's the vibe I've always gotten from this guy, this guy sitting with us today. And, uh, and just, you know, I'll say it in front of you, Jacob, he, you're cool as ice, man. You've always been uh, respectable and, and, and all that, and you, you're, uh, you're, you're just nice to people, but you're also uh, a fan who's just up in the middle of whatever you are, you know, whatever you about rock and roll that you fell in love with is the first thing that you want to talk about, and uh, that's just a real fan, and uh, I feel like that's why you and, and uh, me and the toys guys have always gotten along so well is uh, from the day we met you it was just you were just easy peasy just super easy to run into and hang for a bit and it's almost like uh cut from the same cloth there you go yeah absolutely and i appreciate you saying that man because um y you uh, obviously 
huge, huge music fan. You know everything about every genre from thrash metal to rock to classic rock to like you name it, um, which I love. And it's like that's 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 why we all got into it. It's just our love of music. You know, there's so many people out there that think that the reason that we get into music is all about pussy or something. And it's just not like, it's like, it's, it's about the music and it's just such a, such an amazing thing, man. It's like, I grew up really, really, really poor with a single mom. And it's like, music was the escape. Like yeah. watching the videos on MTV, um, listening to the radio. It's like, that was the escape and that was the dream. And that's like, Hey, I want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to echo something Jason just said. And, you know, again, we've never met until today, uh, but I do know that you seem to have a universally uh, you're universally regarded as a really uh, chill dude and a consummate professional. And I can understand why you've had some of the opportunities you've had uh, if you've got that sort of reputation that just sort of precedes you. So good on you for taking it seriously and, and being a pro about it. And, you know, as long as you continue doing those things, these kinds of opportunities will come along. For the record, I got into rock and roll before I knew what pussy was. So eat perfect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> me so it too. ain't about it ain't about that. It's about the way that it made me feel when I when it went into my ears. Yeah. 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 And Jason, I don't know if I ever told you the story. I'm going to tell you on the show. Okay. Um, one of my best friends that is a lifelong best friend. First day of school when I was a kid, I was nervous as hell. I just moved. I didn't know anybody. So I walked in, homeroom, the first subject or whatever, at nine o'clock in the morning, whatever it was. I don't remember if we did school at eight or nine. I can't even remember, but um, I didn't know anybody. I was nervous as hell. I was like, man, I don't, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to make friends here or whatever. One of my best friends this day is a guy named Jimmy Adderhold. He ended up being my guitar tech after we got record deals and just just always remained friends. When I walked into home homeroom, I sat behind a guy and I could read the back of his shirt and it said sporting a Woody. And uh, I was like, <laughs> I was like, dude, dude, you, you you're a toys man. He turned around and you know, the big ass clown and everything. And so instantly I'd found my tribe. So yeah, wow. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was it was a guy wearing a Motorhead shirt for me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when, the same situation. I just moved, and you know, you're looking for your people, and you don't know anybody. And it's day one, and you walk into the cafeteria or whatever, and there's one headbanger wearing a fucking Motorhead shirt. That's my that's my people. Beeline yeah. right to it. Never left, and. Dave, I'm talking about Mike Solis, of course. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So that <laughs> that situation, that you know, that's a classic story, and it's kind of something that we visit quite often on on this podcast is about how you, you know how it's just something as silly as a concert T-shirt or a button on your jacket or a cap that you're wearing, or it could almost be the boots you walk in. You know, where you're just going, damn, all right. I know this guy yep. is into some same shit that I'm into. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it, it it changes uh, the only level of 
fierceness that changes is how old you are at the time that story that that it may apply uh because um i mean i went to a catholic school in like seventh and eighth grade or something i'm i'm not catholic but so it was kind of this you had to pay tuition to go it was convenient it was across the street from my house at the time and there was not a dress code but they wouldn't let me wear my kiss t-shirts in which i had a plenty I had one for every day of the fucking week and they did not like me wearing kiss t-shirts to Catholic school. So my friends were far and few between, but the times that I did get away with wearing my kiss t-shirt collection, that's how I met the people that I still call friends today. So yeah. very similar. I appreciate you sharing me that Jimmy still around. Yeah. Yeah. Jimmy's still around, man. Hi, it's Jimmy. Like yeah, yeah. He, shout out like, to Jimmy, like my man. oldest friend. <laughs> awesome. He, he's still sporting a Woody too. Fuck yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Jacob, um, tell us something about uh, Mick Mars that we may not know about. What What about his personality did you discover once you started working with him closely? Is there anything well, that you didn't know about him that you got to know because you're collaborating? Yeah, absolutely. Because anytime you see something with Motley, it's like Tommy was always in the press and Nikki's in the press. And, you know, Vince did the reality show at one point um, that uh, where they all are in a house together and, you know, thing. So it's like you knew stuff about the other guys in Motley and the interviews with Tommy and Nikki, they were always over the top. So there's so much information out there about those guys with Mick. There's not a lot of information about him um, and interviews, even for full band interviews. He was the one that was always really quiet, didn't really say much. And then when you would watch um, videos like Home Sweet Home, the very beginning of it, it's that whole satanic scene where he's like, you know, where they're all like, dude, I'm on my way. And and Mick's like, you know, with, with his voice pitched down, he's like. I'm on my way, you know, sitting inside the chair with the pentagram and stuff. So he was always the like really scary, like, like, oh man, I bet this dude's a devil worshiper or something, you know? <laughs> and um, when you meet him, the thing that's absolutely nuts is how funny he is. He is the funniest guy in the world, always cracking jokes, super sharp, super quick. And I mean, if he wouldn't have been a, a guitar player, he could have been a comedian. He's so funny. So that's like, that's something that, you know, that takes you by surprise when you, uh, when you wow. actually get to know him and become friends with him. Yeah. That's exactly why I ask. you nailed it because we all know so much about Nikki and, and Tommy and Vince and, and Mick has always been the quiet one. So that's why I wanted to ask you because you're on the inside, you're on the inner circle now and actually working with the man. So, uh, yeah, I'm just curious to know if uh, anything struck you as uh, interesting based on your perception prior to working with him. Yeah, man. He was always the man shrouded in mystery. He was always the person that there wasn't a lot of information out there on. I mean, forever. Nobody even knew his age. Nobody, you know, it's like before Wikipedia and all that stuff. It's like everybody knew that he was the, you know, like like the oldest guy in the band, but nobody knew anything about this guy yeah what he, now that he's got my this, favorite guy in motley that's for sure 
Yeah. yeah. He's a, a riff monster. Uh, and he's he was the heavy. He was what made that. I'm not telling you guys shit, but he's kind of yeah. the guy. When, when Motley got heavy, it was because of what Mick was doing, not because of what anybody else was doing. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, you know, now that this album is is out by the time this show airs, it's out for a few days. Uh, the other side of Mars. Uh, obviously, you guys are really proud of it. And uh, but what are the odds of us getting any shows out of this? Because we all know Mick. One of the reasons he stepped aside is because he's kind of, you know, his health isn't conducive to a lot of long-term touring that I understand, but would there be any shows, you know, here and there kind of thing, or what are you going to do for live performance, if anything? Yeah, that's completely up to Mick and his health and how he feels and all of that, you know, it's like, and it also depends on um, if I could take time off to, to go do it because my main job is I'm a pop writer. So like I'm always writing for pop artists, or scoring movies or whatever. So it just depends on if, if the, and then Ray being in corn and Paul being in winger, it's like, if it was going to be that lineup, just the, the stars would kind of have to align. Um, all I know is the same as, as what you guys know is, you know, what he's mentioned in interviews that he has no desire to, to tour, but if there's interest and somebody wants to do like some one-offs or something like that, he's up for it. And, I'm sure that we could all find time to, uh, to, to do it. It would be a lot of fun to, to go do it, but ultimately it's up to him. Yeah. I think it would end up being very celebratory and probably healthy for, uh, for him as well as fans that might miss him, you know? Uh, because I think, yeah, man. And I think the record is, uh, is going to, uh, surprise folks. And I think it's going to be something that is, uh, uplifting for people that miss him. So they're going to, a lot of people are going to want to see that shit live at least once, you know, um, you got to celebrate that somehow in a live aspect. Let's talk about you, uh, your day job. You just mentioned it. Let's talk about prior to that. When I first met you, and not to, we don't have to go long on this at all. You were fronting Linum. Tell us about Linum, how that got going, how that sort of might have been something that uh, got you to a level to where you were, you know, meeting more people that would launch you into uh, where you are now maybe yeah it 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 really all started with a a band that was pre-linum called mars electric okay and mars electric was my first band that got signed to a major label um we started out on atlantic and then we um you know same story that happens to a lot of people get dropped before the record even comes out and then um john kaladner signed us to columbia and um, obviously I'd always known who John Kaladner is being a massive fan of, of rock and roll. You know, it's the dude that signed white snake, the dude that signed, I mean, he signed so many like legendary bands, Aerosmith, all that. So when he was interested in, and flew to Alabama and, and watched us play and gave us a record deal, 
that's kind of like when everything took off because Kalodner encouraged me to write just constantly write. He was like, man, you have a great sense of melody and, um, you know, you should write songs. Even if your band doesn't end up cutting them, you should just write songs. And he encouraged me to write for other people and all of that. And then um, the other person that did the same thing was Randy Jackson, because um, Randy was the senior vice president of Columbia Records. And um, that's a really long story, but I wouldn't be where I am today without Randy. And, um, and so Randy and Kalodner both, you know, they were very encouraging about writing songs and, uh, for myself or other people, whatever. So, um, I was kind of already in that world a little bit after Mars Electric broke up and we started lining them. And with Mars Electric, we were, I felt like we were a really great band a great live band and all of that stuff all of our personalities didn't necessarily mesh um but with Lynam, it was completely different we were a fucking horrible band but we had so much fun and our personalities were were like like every day all we did was laugh and had so much fun and it's like when I met David, the drummer, he was more of a mascot than a drummer. He was that annoying guy that would be at the front of the stage when every cover band would play. And he'd be like, man, let, let me play Bon Jovi or let me play Pour Some Sugar on Me. And bands would let him get up on stage. And like he couldn't even play Pour Some Sugar on Me. It was awful. Like the, like it was a train wreck every time he got up on stage. Um, and his name is David Lynham. When I met him and we became friends, he's like, he's like, yo, man, um, I'm doing this thing. Can you come sing for me at, at, at this club? And Mars Electric had just broken up. And I'm like, yeah. And so he sent me over a set list. It was a cover gig. We went and played. And it was a train wreck. How horrible this guy is. It's like you've never heard somebody play drums so bad. We had so much fun. We started booking other shows, um, cover shows. And, uh, and like I said, we just never stopped laughing and we named the band Lynam because he was so bad and everybody knew he was bad and everybody around town, like when they saw that the name of the band was Lynam, they're like, David Lynam, that awful drummer. It's like, holy <laughs> shit, he's got a band named after him. But what happened was after playing every we were playing six and seven nights a week and we were doing uh frat parties sorority parties bar gigs just playing covers all end of the spectrum and writing originals he got good just from playing over and over and over and over and over again he he got really really good to where the band eventually got to a point where we were <laughs> I hate to say this, but you know, if you're a musician, like, okay, if you came to our show and you were blind, we would be the shittiest band you've ever heard. But as long as you could hear with your eyes, we were like one of the greatest bands because like we had uh, like just the stage show was just awesome. But like I said, we just had so much fun. And so Lionem to this day, we've never broken up. We're all best friends. We just rarely play gigs anymore. Um, 
because everybody's doing different things. David is now a comedian. He's focusing full time on comedy and nice. Mark, the bass player, he he left the band originally because he got the role in that Tom Cruise movie, Rock of Ages. Um, so he's the bass player in our song. Wow. And um, and then I just got so busy with songwriting and then got into the film composing world and started scoring movies and um yeah man and and so that's that's the story that's how everything happened it's awesome i noticed in one of the i think it's the line lineum video uh you're wearing a fastway shirt yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah tell us about that because i thought that was cool you don't see a fastway shirt every day especially the all fired up shirt Man, I just, I loved Fastway. I love Dave King. I love his vocals. Anybody that could do something with their voice that I couldn't, it's like, that's why I was such a fan of Jason's band. uh, Because it's like, Jason could sound like a song like Scared, where it's like non-falsetta, just like a regular kind of lower range or whatever. It's still sounded rock and roll, sounded cool. But then all of a sudden he could turn around and sound like Janis Joplin. Like, literally, and it's like, holy shit, I've always loved singers that can do what, what I can't do, and I've always tried to, to to do that, and Dave King was one of those guys that just had, you know, the, the typical um, drink whiskey and razor blade type voice when he wanted to, like, get really gritty like that, and um, yeah, so Fastway was just always a band that I just loved so much and um yeah and a friend of mine found that fastway shirt um it was an old tour shirt and he bought it from somebody for like five bucks and uh and he gave it to me because he knew that i love fastway so much so that's awesome well you got a he got a good deal on a on an original tour shirt for five bucks Yes, yeah, sir. <laughs> that those vintage prices on eBay and that shit's collectors, you know. That's this... what caught my eye. I saw it and I was like, "Whoa, that's a Fastway shirt!" And then I was eyeballing it and I was like, "Whoa, that's an all fired up Fastway shirt. That's even probably a little more rarer than the checkerboard, you know." And an original. And an original. Yep. I saw. Uh, I got my second concert was Fastway open for Saxon and Iron Maiden. So yep. I got to I got to see them with Dave Amazing. on yep. their first tour and it was I awesome. was there at Hemisphere Arena. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's what's crazy is me being such a huge fan of Fastway and in particular Dave King. Years later, a buddy of mine tells me to come see this like this this band, this called Flog and Molly, this like a drinking band, Irish band or whatever. Yeah. And he's like, Oh yeah, they're they're a punk band. And so I go to the music hall, which is the local venue at my in, in Birmingham, and I watch the show, and they are so freaking great. And my buddy Greg, he's like, well, come back and say hello to the band because I'm friends with them. And I was like, I, I'm going to go get some food. I was hungry. And, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, punk band, whatever. The next day, I found <laughs> out that the short, haired red-haired guy on stage that's the singer is dave king from fastway he just looks completely different now sings completely different plays completely different music and i was like holy shit i would have loved to have met him i was like i had no idea that he was in fastway and my friend was like well i didn't either then another friend of mine says 
dude, he would not have wanted to talk fast away with you. That's like so far behind him. He would, he would probably have stopped talking to you and walked away. I've heard, <laughs> like, oh, man. I've heard similar <laughs> stories about that, uh, about Dave, just not, not wanting to talk eighties hard rock with you at all. Uh, I think because mainly he was discovering himself w- around the those early years, and I believe he was so young when he yeah. was working with Fast Eddie. Uh, you know, Fast Eddie just picked, found him, and picked him, and kind of molded him into this. And he probably said, "Yes, sir." I mean, I don't know. Don't mark my words. I'm not a. Uh, I, I'm not. I don't know everything about Dave King, but. I felt the same way, you know, as a budding singer and just trying to pick up. I mean, Say What You Will came on the radio, you know, it was a new song when it, you know, and I was hearing it on the radio and I was like, that singer is fucking great. Some shit going on right there. And it was immediately recognizable, but I, I wanted to get into it because I was already a Motorhead fan, but I heard you know, the boogie woogie. And I heard that, uh, you know, Dave King just sing his ass off and I'm like, holy shit. But yeah, you're, when you hear the flogging Molly stuff, they're fucking killing it. And if you're, if you're a Dave King fan, you can tell that it's Dave King, but if you're not looking for it, it'll go right over your head because it's, it's like super fast folk, you know, Irish folk, Scottish folk music or something but it's more of like done like a ska kind of a thing or something. Yeah. And a dropkick Murphy's type of vibe and stuff. Yeah. So it's just like, you know, just it, it, it went over my head. Like I just, I knew that the dude had a cool voice when I saw him Yeah, and there was some familiarity about it, but it just, it never dawned on me that it was right. actually Dave. King. <laughs> That's like pretty said, awesome. I, yeah. And I, I just always loved those singers that had that type of voice to me, you know, I've, it's it's always been easier for me to sing on the clean side. Like like uh, I've always had a range, a low range, and a high range, and all that stuff. But it's easier for me to sing Iron Maiden songs or Journey songs or something like that than it would be to sing Tease and Pleasing or to sing an ACDC song or to sing whatever. It's like um, Jason, you remember like when I sang because um, I think we we at the end of the show we all did, but when I sang the Cinderella stuff yeah it's like it's uh it was more like um you know super clean because because that rasp i've never been able to do that and i've always respected people that can do that well yeah. it's it's a it's really a cartoon voice you know when you kind of think about <laughs> what you're do, what you're doing with your pipes when you kind of like you know bend the folds or whatever to get that you know grit you know, you throw a bunch of junk into the hallway, you know, and, and it's not going to come out clean. Uh, um, um, you know, I think that it's amazing to be that singers can even still have that grit and sing at all because it sounds like they're going to die. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, when they yeah. when they have the crazy razor blade shit going on. Yeah, uh, we we just had Nigel Glockler from Saxon on, and we talked a little bit about Biff Byford's voice, and he's an older gent now. He's been doing it as I mean forever, you know, yeah. uh, and he's got more grit in his voice now, and he sing. It sounds 
his voice sounds cooler and better and stronger than ever. And he's in into his seventies now. So it's very interesting, the human voice and, and what it is about that. It's interesting. Let's talk about this for a second, not to turn it into a workshop, but when you say you sing clean, it's easier for you to sing journey just for the record. I suck at journey because there's a certain part of my range that when I get up to a certain place in my range where I have to sing on the break, you know, it turns into like a third voice or something and it's not a true voice. So I can sing journey, but it's, it's a tough one for me. And Bruce Dickinson is harder for me to sing to emulate than Paul Diano, if that makes sense for yeah. the same reason. And I can sing Rob Halford. I'm not patting myself on the back, but I, I, I'm, I'm very up in and well-versed in what Rob Halford does because he has all of, he has like five or six different voices. And again, not tooting my horn here, but so do I. And I know w there might be a part of a song that's calling me, that's telling me to use, oh, I need to go to the filing cabinet. Here's the voice that I need for this part of this song because, you know, when the dynamic is changing, I have these voices that I kind of go automatic to. If it's Journey where it's just this sweet voice all the way through and in any part of your range, high, low, middle, whatever, I don't really have that. I have to go through, like I said, I have these voices that I use for that dynamic, if that makes sense. So to sing, yeah, to sing clear all the time, that's almost, that's not, that's, that's something I struggle with. So it's interesting that, you know, every singer has their own sort of footprint. So to, to sing Cinderella tunes in a clean voice, that's, that's fine. There's only one Tom Kiefer. Yeah. 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 That, that, absolutely. Yeah. That, absolutely. Brings up an, that brings up an interesting point. So Jacob, when you're, when you're singing on the Mick Mars record, you know, uh, your, your voice is obviously something very personal. And is there any direction from Mick at any point where he's like, uh, that's too high, that's too low. Don't sing like that. Sing more like this. Or is he kind of letting you stay in your comfort zone, just respecting the fact that you're a singer and you know, your limits and this is what you do. No, he was, uh, he was really good about that. He just liked what I did and which is, which is cool. Um, I, cause some stuff I would sing really low, some stuff I would sing really high. It just depends on the song and I've got different voices. They just don't break up like that, like melodically, like, and what I mean by melodically is like someone like Tom Kiefer or someone like Brian Johnson or someone like Jason. It's like they can melodically break up their voice. So some of the stuff I'm doing on mixed record is I'm singing, but it's almost like screamo. And it's like when people hear this record, they're really, really going to be surprised because there's some really heavy shit on it. So um, it sounds like a mixture between like I'm, I'm freaking screaming, like almost screamo and then going into this like uh, Pantera five finger death punch type vocal or something because I can get really angry like that. I just can't do back in black. You know what I mean? It, like, like I can't break my voice up like that. Yeah. Well, your, your speaking voice is, is very deep. So I, I can, I can imagine you being able to do some of that really gruff 
stuff, you know, like you, you reference Pantera that, that seems to me like it would, it would come fairly natural just given your speaking voice and you're a trained singer for God's sake. So yeah, I could see that. Do you, oh, so yeah. you do have some training, you have vocal training. <laughs> No, I meant, man, I, just, I meant just out of experience. Oh, okay. Right. Go ahead, Jacob. So I was, uh, I was about uh, to freak out. I didn't know Jacob had gone to school for this shit. I thought he was from the wrong side of the tracks. And no, I just meant it. that he's been doing it for oh, a long okay. time. Well, so dude, I just, yeah. dude, we were so freaking poor, man, growing up. Like literally, like my last grade of school, I completed a seventh grade. I'm I'm a hillbilly from Alabama. I never went to school for for anything, but. Um, you turned yeah. out fucking perfect, bro. You're a great dude, and and uh, you don't need that. You don't need to be worried about that. But I'm so glad that you're here and doing the things that you got to do. You're obviously blessed, and so it's fantastic. It's fantastic. I appreciate it. The, yeah. the, the amount of training that I had is when we first signed to Atlantic Records, um, our A&R guy, his name was Kim Stevens, and um, me and the guitar player that sang Harmony, we would go to Atlanta um, a few times and and take vocal lessons from this uh, lady that was awesome. She would she would just teach you how to not blow your voice out on the road once you're like singing every single night. And then the only other vocal lesson that I had was Bruce Dickinson from Iron Maiden, um, and what? that's something Lodner hooked up. Um, yeah, it's wow. a. He asked Bruce to, uh, to, he's like, I just, I just signed this kid, just give him some vocal lessons and stuff. So it wasn't a thing like where I went over to his house once a week or something like that. It was a one-time thing. Okay. And we just talked about vocal stuff. And, and that was, that was the most amazing advice I'd ever gotten because, um, he didn't hold up charts and show you what your vocal cords look like and all that stuff. He just explained it in layman terms. He's like, he's like, I fly planes when we're not on tour and not making records and everything else. I'll go a really long time without singing. He goes, I'll, I'll fly planes and I'm not even thinking about it. When it's time for us to go on tour, I'll go downstairs, grab the vinyl, put on number of the beast. He said, I'll sing one song and then I'm done for that day. He said, the next day I'll come down and I'll do two songs. And then I'm done for the day. He said, the next day I'll come down and I'll do four songs. And he said, what you have to remember about your voice is it's a muscle. You have to use it, but not abuse it. And he said, think about a carpenter that doesn't have a nail gun, that uses a hammer and nails. Well, after eight hours every single day, their hands have calluses all over them from the, from the hammer and nails. And he said, so you don't want to overuse it like that because the calluses on your vocal cords are nodes and that's no good. So he says, build up to it, but make sure that you use it. And he said, pay attention to your body. It was, it was all like lame and term stuff that was just like, dude, that makes all the sense in the world. And so before we would go on tour, I took what he said to heart before we'd go do a tour or anything like that. We would write out our set list. I'd put on my, my headphones and I would jog like either on a treadmill or just around my neighborhood. And I would sing, sing the whole set, just running. Cause it was also about cardio and everything else. And once I got to the point where, um, I could sing our whole, you know, being an opening band in Mars electric, most of the time it was 30 minute set. So once I could run for 30 minutes on the treadmill while singing full volume, the songs, 
and I wasn't out of breath, then I knew we were going to be good. I knew the tour was going to go great and everything else. So that's the only vocal training I had was just really advice. Wow. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the only training you ever had came from Bruce Dickinson. What a bummer. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, that's amazing that, that, you know, you were in a position to where, oh, yeah, my buddy Bruce, hey, come on over here and talk to this guy. You know, that is priceless. <laughs> Yeah. One one time or not. It wouldn't have been as cool if he became your sensei. Speaking of the the advice that he gave him gave you is very Miyagi. Yeah. Very really- Mr. Miyagi. Running and singing and well yeah. Well, you know, it was it was like a you know the the uh the, oh, the fortune repetition. cookie shit. The fortune cookie stuff, the calluses, yeah. you know, the you know, one time, that's it. Well, yeah, my set is 30 minutes. One, one, just one. You know, he's kind of just telling you, you don't need to be the the hero on day one. Your tour is weeks away. Build up kind of thing. Wax on, wax off. Why am yeah, I doing right. it like this? Right? Well, now yeah. you know. So that's, let's, that's cool. Let's, let's jump ahead uh, from Lynham to Adler. Um I mean that that band had a lot of star power. You've got yourself, Steven Adler, uh, Johnny Martin, and I, I think it was Lonnie Paul. I don't know if he was there yep. from the start, but he was there. Um, and so, and you would think that Adler's going to draw a lot of attention, obviously, uh, from Guns and Roses. We had Johnny on the show, and I asked him what was the undoing of that band because on paper it looks like a recipe for success in your opinion wh- why did that band not do better or reach a bigger audience well um steven would tell you um that we had everything going for us like when the record came out we uh I think our first single came around, came out around the time they were being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And Steven was clean. He was working out. Um, He was going over to Lonnie's every day and working out. And he was so happy. Like you'd never seen somebody so happy and at peace. This was the first thing that he had done outside of Guns N' Roses, like a, a big release. And we had what we all felt was an incredible record. And the day that we started um, our press campaign for the record, we had a whole day, like a press day that started at um, eight o'clock in the morning, LA time until, I mean, we were going to be doing it for like 12 or 14 hours of just nothing but interviews and everything. And our publicist dialed in and we're all over at Lonnie's house sitting around the phone. And the very first thing, the very first interview that we did, um, I think it was with Rolling Stone, the guy said, hey, Stephen, what are your thoughts on Axel and Izzy not coming to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? And Stephen said, what? He, he like, like, it destroyed him you'd never seen somebody uh, a look on somebody's face like that he went from being so happy and so calm and so everything to like ah, you know just or literally we had to hang up the phone because he was saying some stuff 
um, we had to hang up the phone and we had to cancel the rest of the tour date because it broke his heart because he believed in all of his heart that those five guys that created, you know, one of the most amazing records in rock and roll history would get on stage and do it one more time. And he was so excited about that. And so that was the catalyst to what kind of made him um, fall off the wagon a little bit and everything else. And, you know, and it's no secret. It's like, you can look all this stuff up. Our tours were canceled because of, of certain things and, um, and him wanting to get better again, having to go into rehab and all that. And the good thing about the band Adler is I've never been drunk in my life. I've never drank. I've never done drugs. I've never done anything. Um, Lonnie didn't drink or do drugs. Johnny didn't do drugs and he wouldn't drink around Steven and our road crew didn't drink or do drugs. And so like we, we were a great, great support team to him and a great support system to him. When the record came out, all of the reviews across the board were awesome. Everybody seemed to like really dig the record. VH1 Classics added the video. We went on that metal show, all that stuff. And it really seemed like everything was going great. But when we had to cancel those tours, we had to cancel the tour of the U.S. We had to cancel the European tour. We had to cancel all that stuff. And we took a break for about a year or two. I don't even remember how long it was at this point. And when we when we came back we weren't doing these full-fledged tours we were just doing weekend dates just to kind of dip our toes in and all that and um and steven you know was just like you know what this i don't i don't know if this is fun because people would come to the show and we were doing the entire adler record and then for the encore, we would do two Guns N' Roses songs. So we'd pick different Guns N' Roses songs, and that would be the encore. But um, by the time that we, our very last show ever was at M3. And by the time we got to M3, um, the show was all Guns N' Roses songs with one Adler song. So it's like, he realized that that it's very, very, very hard to introduce new music to existing fans that want to hear all of the classics and everything. So um, I, I, I think that's what it is. I didn't hear Johnny's answer to it, so I don't know what his answer was. Yeah, Johnny basically said something similar. Uh, I, I point blank asked him if Stevens' demons were an issue and if they had come back and sort of manifested themselves in that band. And if that was part of the derailment and, and Johnny basically said, yeah, pretty much. Um, and then that was sort of the end of the subject. I didn't want to pry any further. So I, I do appreciate you being so candid about that. Um, I, I can just imagine, you know, the attention that's on him and, you know, given his background and, and some of his history, that's gotta be a lot of pressure, man. And he I, is so gracious with fans like no matter what kind of mood he's in no matter how tired he is he never forgets the reason that he's able to do whatever the fuck he wants to do for the rest of his life and not have to worry about anything he knows it's because of the fans 
he is so gracious with everybody. He gives everybody a big hug. He'll sign anything that you want him to sign. He's just the greatest dude. And he's one of my favorite people in the world. It's like, I just talked to him last week. He's awesome. You know, he, he's doing so well. And, um, He's back to doing the what was Adler's Appetite, but now it's just Steven Adler, but he's playing the Guns N' Roses songs. The singer he has now will blow your fucking mind. He sounds just like Axel. His name is Ari. He's from Argentina. Sweetest guy in the world. And, man, if you close your eyes, you would think it's Axel Rose in 1988. Like, he's wow. amazing. I think I saw them in... Uh... Pittsburgh a couple of years ago, Dirty Looks. I'm fronting Dirty Looks now, and we did a show in Pittsburgh. And uh, man, I can't even remember how long ago, two years ago, maybe. And uh, I saw, I'm pretty sure it was this Ari guy you're talking about. And he was, it was pretty crazy how amazing, uh, how, how good the kid was. Uh, did you know that I was up? for uh, like i talked to steven on the phone like he wanted he was looking to get me involved at some point yeah like i had no idea but that's something that you could do with your eyes closed you've got that range and that voice you can make your voice break up like that you'd totally be able to do that i think other people were telling steven that that you know that the same thing and I think at the time, uh, Tracy Guns was involved as well. That's, but that was a fucking long time ago. I barely recall that. And I think somebody at Artist Worldwide would put us in touch to see about getting that going. But anyway, that's another story. Um, Tell me real quick how you met Johnny Martin since we're on the topic of that. Yeah, good one. How'd you meet Johnny? So after we did the Adler record, um, Jeff Pilson played bass on the Adler record and he produced it and talk about a dude that's insanely talented. Good Lord, man. That dude is insanely talented. Um, we were looking for a bass player and um, Lonnie knew Johnny and Lonnie was having a party and Steven went over to his house and Johnny was there and Johnny picked up the bass and started playing Rush. As soon as that, that's all you have to do with Steven, man. <laughs> like, but, but Johnny's so incredible. He was playing the stuff note for note. And he goes, he goes, this dude can play Rush. He's like, you're in the band. And I think at the time, Johnny was, was coming out of one of the versions of LA Guns at the mm -hmm. time. So we were lucky enough for him to, uh, to come on board and be a full fledged band member. And, um, you know, and just uh, wh what a guy, man. He's just, just amazing yeah yeah he's, he's a lot of fun. i met him when he was playing with jesse mallon at south by southwest one year and we got to talking after the show and he said you know he goes give me your phone number your email address or whatever we should stay in touch and i'm thinking there's no way this guy's going to stay in touch with me i'm just some guy that walked up to him after a show and all these years later we're we're still you know we text each other and send each other silly jokes and i see him when he comes into town with la guns and He's a great guy, man. He's been he's been a really cool guy. He's the dude at the party that played Rush on a bass in the corner. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's exactly who yeah. he is. He's amazing. I love it. <clears throat> Tell us about Neon Coven. Uh, that's a, yeah. something you did with Ace Von Johnson. Uh, speaking of L.A. Guns, and it, it is a. 
you know, for if people are thinking that because Ace is involved, it's going to either have a punk rock background or it's going to have some L.A. Guns, Faster Pussycat kind of vibe. It doesn't. So tell us what Neon Coven was all about and what's the status of that? Would you guys consider doing something something more in the future? Yeah, we have a show um, Friday in Vegas at Vamped. Um, well, the, the show will be over by the time this this airs. But so the way that that came about was really, really simple, man. We were on the Monsters of Rock cruise, uh, Ace with Faster Pussycat. Me, that's my one vacation a year where I just go and just freaking watch the bands that I love. Um, don't play. Don't do anything but run from one end of the ship to the next and just watch bands. I love it. And Anthony, the guy that sings, and I'm not the singer in Neon Coven. I'm the guitar player and keyboard player. Anthony, the guy that sings, was teching for L.A. Guns on the Monsters of Rock. April Lee, who's uh, Larry's assistant, she walks up to us and kind of introduces us. Uh, me, me and Ace are sitting there hanging out, and she walks Anthony up to us, and she goes, you guys are like the youngest guys on the ship. You guys look cool. She goes, you're in a band now. And we all just kind of laughed. We're like, what do you mean? And she goes, you guys are my boy band that I'm putting together. You guys are a goth boy band. And we laughed and and we hung out um, on the ship and everything. And then as soon as the cruise was over, Anthony texted me like two days later and was like, hey, man, can we get together and write? And I was just like, well, I thought this was a joke. And he goes, nah, man, let's do it. So we all got together and uh, and recorded uh, a, an EP originally. And the whole thing is, it's, you know, we were laughing about being a goth boy band. But it's like, man, I love New Wave as much as I love rock. I was like, let's just do something that's just super Duran Duran meets freaking Nine Inch Nails meets, you know, the the cult and the rock stuff that I like. And um, yeah, so we all got together and we did it and we have a good time. And we always joke that we're not a real band. We're just because like, like we've never done a tour. We've just played a handful of shows and, but we've recorded a couple of EPs, a couple of um, standalone singles, and then, um, and then a full length record. Like when the pandemic hit in 2020, we just said, fuck it, let's do a record. And we did. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool, man. I, yeah. I, I like, I like that stuff. Like you said, you named a few bands. I, I was thinking ball house and stuff like along those lines, you know, yep. um, uh, tell us. Okay. So I, when, when I was looking over your, your resume for lack of better word, I saw some names on there that I just have to ask you about. Um, tell me about your work with Steven Tyler. What was your involvement with him? Um, he was doing that. So Smokey Robinson, originally there was going to be a Smokey Robinson tribute album. Right. And so the song started out, um, Randy Jackson put me on it and the song started out, it was called, you really got a hold on me. And it started out, it was a duet with, um, Bruno Mars and Steven Tyler. And so I did the music, I played guitar and all that stuff. Um, eventually Smokey, after he heard, how everything was going, he decided he wanted to sing on this stuff and do duets with people. So awesome. it ended up becoming um, Smokey and Friends was the name of the record that's out. But um, but yeah, I'm the guitar player, and um, and so him and Steven were doing this uh, doing this thing. It was pretty cool. 
Wow. Our uh, our producer of the Talk Louder podcast runs monitors for Smokey Robinson. Amazing. Yeah. 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 He just got back from a, what, a six-week run with him or something? I'm uncertain of that, but yeah, yeah he stays he stays busy with a, with a, you know, a real gig, but yeah, for the little, like, fly dates and stuff, Smokey does. Jared, our producer, is his guy, man. Hands him his mic all the time, you know, make sure his ears are good. It's true. Yeah. So did you spend any time with, with Tyler and Smokey, or is this just kind of you record the tracks and send them to them and they appear on the album? Now you do it. You're in the studio and you spend some time and stuff like that, but it's nothing like where you become buds, like you're on tour and stuff. So many of the uh, recording situations are like that. It's like when you're writing songs with artists, it's like you might have like a day set aside for writing and the artist will come in and you'll write with them. And um, sometimes like during COVID, you're trying to do it over Zoom, which sucks. Some people can do it. I didn't have a good time doing it because I feel like you can't catch a vibe over over Zoom creatively trying to write something. Something like this is awesome. You can have a conversation over Zoom, but like if if we were going to write a song, we would need to be in the like like with me. It's just I'm going to vibe better if we're all in the same room and we're going back and forth on stuff and everything else. So um but usually a lot of the pop stars and all that stuff like you'll you might you might only know them for for you know four or five hours, and then have a, a massive hit together that that's a massive hit for life. You know, it's yeah. like you just never know. And then there's other times or situations like what you just said that you don't even meet the people. You just you just end up doing it. What's the what's the biggest hit you've had as a songwriter? Is there anything we'd know from a pop artist that is your baby? Um. I've, I've, I've been very fortunate, man. I've been very blessed. I don't ever talk about the pop stuff because like I'm a rock guy. And so I've always tried to not even have anything out there about being in the pop world for no other reason than I'm a rock guy. But well, somehow- you're, you're humble. You're humble because <laughs> at first you're humble, even about your, your, if you wanted to, to, uh, you know, show us your feathers about your rock stuff. You're still humble even about that. So. I am. I, I'm one of those people that um, I, I'm the worst at talking about myself and I've, I, I'm very conversational, but like once I have to like talk about myself, like I, I, it, I just get, uh, I'm just the worst in the world. And just so you guys know. So after the whole, um, Mick Mars thing was was came out who the singer was and all that stuff. I've been hit up by every publication, every podcast, everything that you can think of. And I don't do interviews, period, like period. I don't talk to anybody. I, um, I did one, um, with, with Mick for my hometown paper. His manager asked me to, and then I did one with Don Jameson because he's a friend of mine. Yeah. And then you guys are the third one and you guys are the last one. I'm not doing any more interviews or anything. Cause it's man, I'm, I'm, I'm a geek. Like I'm just, I'm a nerd. And, You're in the right uh, place. <laughs> yeah. And I, I love music, but I hate talking about myself. Right on. <laughs> I, okay. Right on. That's, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. For the record, just, just so everybody knows, I mean, when, when we, you know, 
uh, hit you up for this to be on this our our little show here. Uh, you, uh, I, I mean, it, it was very normal. Come to think of it, it's very normal because uh, you know you you had to wait a little while. It wasn't like hey, come on and just hang out for a little while, which is what we do anyway. But I remember I asked you months ago. Yeah, and you said that you 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 the rules are that you can't do it until this certain time. So February, yeah, yeah, the month that the record's going to come out. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and and uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not doing any at all. Like I, I had this whole um, itinerary of stuff that I was going to do, and just I'm just I'm not the guy. Right. Well, thank, let me just say thank you for joining us, Dan, because that's awesome. If 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 you were kind enough and comfortable enough to to spend some time with us, uh, I, I do appreciate. I appreciated you being on the show anyway, but now I really appreciate it because I, I didn't know this was not your comfort zone. So thank you. Oh, no worries at all, man. It's like I've known Jason for a, a really really long time. First as a as a massive fan, and and then as a friend, and the conversations that we've always had have always been so easy and it's always about music yeah. and our love for music and all that stuff. So I knew that it would, I knew that it would be a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, the, I wanted to, the I unfortunate, wanted to, hold that thought, Dave, the, the, I was going to say, we, you, you brought up the cruise and you know, how you meet people and co people you collaborate with. Now you met them on the cruise. You met me on the cruise the only time, just so everyone knows, I cherish the cruise because it's the only time that I get to see you. I don't bump. In, I don't, I don't That's bump, amazing. I don't bump into you just on. Hey, dude, what's up? You know, let's have some coffee. No, it's but we bump into each other. Hey, you know, on the cruise, and I think the last time we were, other than riding the elevator or seeing Michael Schenker together, it's just pretty much seeing you in the buffet line, you know, yeah. <laughs> for a week we get to be neighbors, you know, and it's pretty cool, but it's only that once a year, once every, you know, biannual that I get me some, some Jacob time. So I actually got to see you at the whiskey this year, which was cool. That's so right. That was, that's right. So yeah. twice in one so year. And your stories. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I know you're too humble to talk about it. So I just wanted people to know that I know on your list of credits, the name Mariah Carey is also on that list. Um, I know you've won an Emmy, not nominated, won an Emmy. Uh, so I'm just going to go out on a limb and say there's probably songs on the radio in the top 40 that people have heard that you probably have a hand in. And I'll yeah, I've, I've, that. I've been uh, I've been very blessed and I've been very lucky. Um, I'm like, like people ask all the time, like, like, especially in the South, you know, are you religious? Are you this or whatever? And I always tell people I'm very spiritual. Um, I always give gratitude because of where I came from. Like I said, it was me and a single mom, poor as poor could be. And I know that life could have gone a lot different. And, um, I feel very blessed and, I always tell people that uh, this this is going to sound preachy, and I don't mean it to sound preachy, but I always tell people, like, sometimes unanswered prayers are the greatest blessings that you can be given because 
my whole life. Growing up in the South, everything is is God and Jesus and all that stuff. It's like that's just how you're kind of how you're you're raised. And I would always pray every single night, you know, like like I want, you know, cable or I want uh, video games or I want the things that the kids have. I, I don't have anything. Yeah. And when I was 11 years old, I walked down from the projects that we lived in to the houses and I mowed three lawns and then went to the local music store that's still here in Birmingham, a place called Highland Music. I was like, I told the guy that owned the shop, I was like, I've got 60 bucks. I'm 11 years old. I want to play guitar more than anything in the world. Please sell me a guitar. He went in the back. There was a brand called Memphis. Yeah. Uh, it yeah. Had, the stock had been broken in shipping. He super glued it back together, fixed it up really nice, set it up where it played really good, sold me the guitar for 60 bucks. I sat in my room and would just listen to the radio and flip through the stations and just learn anything that I could. That's the way that I learned to play. And because we didn't have money for everything that I prayed for, I had nothing but that guitar, which meant every day when I got home from school, I played until I went to sleep. Every morning I played, on the weekends I played. Um, but uh, to make a long story short, um, the whole unanswered prayer thing was the greatest thing that ever happened because it forced me to become really good at crafting songs and everything that eventually led me to do all those things. And um, yeah, and uh, sorry to go on the rant, but it's uh, no, good. But, Great. but yeah, so, uh, you know, and writing all those songs, song structure, is song structure, whether it's pop music, whether it's rock music, whether it's whatever, an infectious melody is an infectious melody. So, once I got into that world, to answer your question, yeah, I've been I've been very, very, very lucky. Man, I, I love that. A $60 guitar. And and here we are talking about the guy who's on Mick Mars's record. <laughs> That's I, I, uh, crazy, man. <laughs> my second bass guitar was a Memphis. Amazing. Yeah. 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 My first bass was a K. Remember that shit? K-A-Y? K? -A -Y? K? Yep, yeah, I, I, had a, I had an SG bass was a K. And I had, then I had a Memphis, which ironically, I uh, had a bad car wreck. Uh, no one got hurt, thank God. But I flipped my first car, and the headstock broke off of my Memphis. So you bought a Memphis that had the headstock glued back on. <laughs> yeah. I broke mine, had to, glue, had to glue mine back on. So Steve, I ruined mine. He broke it. <laughs> Your your first guitar, Steve Vai, had it? He played it? No, no. What happened was is I saw the Yankee Rose video, and he threw the guitar over his shoulder. So oh. I went outside and threw my guitar over my shoulder, and it completely just broke, like, beyond repair. So it's Steve Vai's fault. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> I, want, I wanted to play uh, a round of rapid fire with you because I've seen pictures of you and your t-shirts are always super cool. You like a lot of the same music I like. So uh, you can have only one Danzig, the misfits or Sam Hain. Only one. Yeah, man. <laughs> uh so it would have to be Danzig for me just because the uh, Lucifuge Danzig 2, that second record is one of yes. my favorite records of all time. 
Mine's wow. hanging on the wall back there. That I had him sign it on that tour, and it's it is a masterpiece. I love that record. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Dead Boys or Lords of the New Church? Um, to me, Dead Boys. Yeah, you've yeah. got a Steve uh, Steve Bader's vibe, and I'm sure this is about the 500 millionth time you've heard that. Do you ever there. get a call from Cheetah Chrome asking if you would front the the revamped version of the Dead Boys? No, nah, I'd do it in a heartbeat, though. That'd be that'd be amazing. Um, there's a photo of me in Seattle at a Neon Coven show. It was like the day before our show. We were at some club, and there was a, a poster of Stiv, and I'm standing right next to it. I got to find the picture and send it to you guys. We look identical. Like, the photo of me standing next, next to his poster is hilarious. Yeah. I mean, you're a dead ringer for him, man. Yeah. Um, going back real quick to the Mick Mars stuff, was there any leftover material from those sessions that might surface as a second album? Is there any talk of a second album? Yeah, we, um, I know that Mick is already writing. He's, he's writing some every day and he says he has, you know, several ideas, you know, on it. Um, but, um, as far as leftover songs, there was two that we did that we scrapped and um and I, I don't think they'll ever see the light of day they 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 weren't up to par with the rest of them yeah yeah well you never know i mean someday somebody opens the vaults and says look what we found and that's true <laughs> this is kind of a layman's question and with experience of course is my excuse as to why i know i know the answer but in that situation where you have a couple of songs that, you know, get scrapped or get held back or uh, what, what makes those songs not as bright and shiny as the others? Good question. Um, yeah. So like when you're just listening back, it's like everybody always gets excited about a song as they're writing it. It's like, yeah. that's why every single band that has a new record coming out, when you're reading their interview on Blabbermouth or whatever, they're talking about, this is the greatest thing that we've ever done. This is our greatest record. And then you listen to it and it's like that movie, like where it's African Child, the movie, Get Him to the Greek. It's the it's the album that's just awful. Everybody's like, what in the world are these guys thinking? Um, but they were excited at the time when they were making it. And you think that it's great. Um, so with anything, once you walk away from it, um, and you revisit it in a month after you got, you know, four or five other songs and you realize, oh, this isn't, this isn't so great. It just takes walking away from it for a little while to, to realize, you know, the hook's not strong enough. The chorus isn't strong enough. This riff is too similar in style to something that we already have that is actually great. Yeah. I would, I would also venture to guess that there's sometimes when, and both of you guys could speak to this, there's probably times when songs get rejected because they don't fit the vibe or the flow of the album. They're not necessarily bad songs. They don't, they just don't belong on this album. Cause Absolutely. They'll, they'll disrupt <laughs> the flow or the vibe or something. They kind of stand out like a, you know, a black eye or something. Yeah. And then now there's other things that um, used to not be in, in the picture um nowadays i've actually had records a lot of pop records 
and even rock records. I wrote uh, five songs on the last Quiet Right record. Um, and really, I wrote six songs on the last Quiet Right record. But the label came back because the subject matter, everybody's so scared of getting canceled and how somebody can um, read into something that that's something that never happened when I was growing up. You just wrote whatever the fuck you wanted to write. And it's like you got Guns N' Roses with it so easy. You know, one of the lines in the song is, is turn around, bitch, I got a use for you. Besides, you got nothing better to do and I'm bored or I've, I've got nothing better to do and I'm bored. Um, that kind of stuff, like like a label would put their foot down now. And it's like, no, 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 you, you might get canceled. It's bad on the label, all this stuff. So... Um, so there's that aspect now that was never there before. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. I would have never thought. I mean, Jason could speak to that. I mean, would Sport and a Woody be uh, rejected by a label today, or would they think that I, was a hit? That's <laughs> a good. It's it's a good turn you're you're trying to make here. But I feel like Sport and a Woody is like not it so easy. It's, oh, it's uh, very, yeah, yeah, very sure. silly. It's a sillier, more of yeah. a ZZ Top slip inside my sleeping bag, you know, kind of yeah, a funny yeah. sort of a not to wear a crown, but, you know, I'm trying to rip off Steven Tyler. You know, I'm trying to do yeah. say something that he would say without saying, look at my hard dick, you know, yeah. uh, kind it, of a that's, thing. That's not the song that would get rejected, but I guarantee you now a song um, like Bones in the Gutter, the lyrics to that, a label right. would come back to you. When you submit those lyrics to Bones in the Gutter, they're going to come back to you and they're going to ask you to change um, at least that one line about uh, would I murder your mother or something like that. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, and and whether you do it or not, but somebody would would when they're reading through the lyrics and stuff, they would be like, "Hey, man, you 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 might want to rethink this." And you know, I've I've seen artists, and and this works in the movies too. Like 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 it's movies, it's culture, it's music, it's everything. Everybody's so scared of offending people and how people are going to take it and getting canceled and all that stuff. I've seen people look at the labels, look at the movie studios, and be like fuck you, this is what we're going to do. More times than not, they're like, okay, and they and they rethink it and change it and stuff like that. But yeah, it's uh, Bones in the Gutter would be the song that 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 they would ask you to rethink over Sport and a Woody. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's that's a really interesting point that you that you bring up. Well, wow. a lyric like did I murder your mother? Dudes, I'm just trying to rhyme with gutter. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I mean, I can't use butter, you know. That's, yeah. And, and mutter, mutter is not even hey, that I mutter your mutter. It's a character. I'm doing. It's cartoony <laughs> as fuck. And that would be my only argument to someone crying about some, you know, vicious remark. Or That's one of my favorite songs on the record, man. Dude, so. it's my, it, it's <laughs> yeah. my, it's my favorite song on the record as well. Yeah. 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 Man, so, man, it's, uh, a, it's a murder mystery. You know, it has to have that in there. The whole storyline of the fucking song is in that chorus right fucking there. So Right. Yeah. And rap albums are getting put out every day with stuff like that on it. So <laughs> Yep. <laughs> That's a whole different topic. Yeah. 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 Yep. Jason, Jacob, you got anything else for Jacob? I'm I'm giving you a hug, Jacob. Thank you for being here and just hanging out with us and being candid with us and having yeah. some fun. 
Appreciate it. I get you. to see you in a couple of weeks, man. Looking That's forward right. to it. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much yeah. for joining us. I, I really appreciate it knowing that you don't do a lot of these. So that that means the world to me and and Jason, I'm sure. So thank you for taking the time. Thank you for being so open with us. And uh, we wish you all the success with the Mick Mars record and anything else you do. Uh, even the pop songs that we'll never know about, but I know we'll hear them on the radio. <laughs> Thank we you, brother. appreciate you, man. On behalf of my co-host, Jason McMaster, I'm Metal Dave, along with our special guest today, Jacob Bunton on the Talk Louder podcast.